It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Previous episodes of the show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell and today we're replaying a very important interview conducted by Kay, Michael and Laura two years ago. Yet the topic is as relevant as ever. Today we're going to be speaking to Dr Bonnie Monteleone, who founded the non-profit Plastic Ocean Projecting in 2012 and works at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Dr Monteleone also mentors students involved in marine debris research. Besides Plastic Ocean Project, Inc., she's the coordinator for Cape Fear Rise Above Plastic Through Surf Rider, volunteer for the UNCW Marine Mammal Stranding Program, is a member of the Algalita Marine Research Foundation, is a Five Guys Institute ambassador, manages NC monofilament recovery and recycling receptacles at John Mercer Pier, and contributes to Plastic Ocean's blog site. Whew, that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> How do you have time to do all that? <laughs> You know, it's it's just pure passion. And as you're rattling them off, I'm just having these little blips of, of when I started and the people that I've been involved with from all different corners of this issue with plastic in the ocean. And so it's, it's been a journey, but one that um, there's comfort in number. And there are plenty of people that are really passionate about fixing this problem with plastic pollution. And, and I look forward to sharing, you know, the things that I've witnessed and the reason why there's a real sense of urgency, just like with climate change. Mm. Uh, we really need to figure out what we're doing with this plastic because mm. it's doing a lot of damage. Absolutely. It's quite frightening. And um, as I was looking through the sort of work that you've done, it became more and more frightening, actually, not less. <laughs> Dr. Yes. Monte Leone, I understand you've always had a love of water, which actually led to your interest and concern about this topic of, of the amount of plastics in our oceans. Yeah, it really started. Um, I, I'm from Landlock, Elmira, New York, which is a, a small town in central New York, where you know, good two or three hundred miles away from the ocean. And it wasn't until I was five and seeing the ocean for the very first time that. Uh, it captivated my soul, and and from that moment on, I told everyone that, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to live near the ocean. And so that has gone beyond living near it, but actually living on it at months at a time. <laughs> you take things to extreme, I think. <laughs> well, one thing on your blog that really, really hit home to me was when you talked about 300 million tonnes of plastic that's created each year in the world, and it's growing. It grows at about 8% annually. So now we've, we've just crossed the 300 million. You know, it'll go up again at the end of this year. And the real sad part of it is the fact that 
most of it or half of it is is used for single use or short time use plastic. So plastics that are designed to be used for just a few moments and then discarded. Of course, the downside of that is it's not designed to go away anytime soon. In fact, it's designed to stay for centuries. So when you think of every piece of plastic that you ever used, it's probably still on the planet somewhere. Mm. It just doesn't decompose. It does, does not decompose. And in fact, when I first started my research, I started talking with a polymer chemist. And he's like, Bonnie, what's the big deal? The plastic is accumulating out in the middle of the ocean. It's not hurting anyone. <laughs> so he went back to his office. And I started firing him pictures of you know, marine life ingesting and entangled and you know, just horrific wounds and slow, painful deaths caused by plastic. Well, this gentleman's a sailor. So he came back to my office and... Um, he said, burn it. It's the only way to destroy it. You cannot chemically destroy the plastics other than putting it under intense heat. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason why it persists so long. Mm. Mm. Um, you just said a moment ago that there's 8% growth. How does that compare to population growth? Is it reflective or is it that we're just consuming more and more? I would have to say we're consuming more and more. So even though we're figuring out ways to reduce our use, we have a lot of people, especially like myself, that bring my own coffee cup, bring my own bag, bring my own drinking vessel. It's still the numbers climbing. And so I think part of it's population growth, absolutely. But also uh, the industry just keeps coming up with new little fandango ways to sell plastics because it's cheap to make. It's cost-effective for them to make it because there's, you know, great financial gains because it is so cheap and they can sell it for a lot more. Mm. Bonnie, is your focus mainly on the plastics in the ocean and and what percentage of that 300 million tonnes is getting into the ocean? Uh, Not my research, but uh, some recent research that came out that did analysis on estimates that are probably flowing into the ocean due to runoff. They estimate between 8 8 to 12 um, million metric tons of plastic ending up in the ocean just from runoff. And that's not including, you know, what's left on the beach or what people are purposely dumping into the ocean uh, from ocean goers and also the stuff that's lost at sea, you know, through cargo ships. So um, hmm. 80% of it is estimated to be going into the ocean from runoff. So we, we really can't blame, you know, people that live on the coast or the ocean goers. It's, it's all of us. It doesn't matter if you live on a mountain because rivers lead to rivers that lead to the ocean. And, and anything you see on the ground has the potential of, of ending up in the ocean at one point. There's a, a website, Adrift, I think it's called, an Australian website um, done by someone in Canberra, and that shows you a picture of the world and if it allows you to drop a piece of rubbish on anywhere around the world and then it shows where it ends up in the ocean. And because there's five Gaias around the world, aren't there, that I think you've yeah, got a website. Yes, yes. Five, so there's five um, gyres. I mean, gyres, gyres, it's the same word. Mm-hmm. But um, they're essentially circulation systems, you know, and they're all connected. So all the oceans are connected. And I, I like to equate it like our human blood. You know, it has to keep moving. That's how you keep away infection. And that's how you, you keep the nutrients getting where it belongs. 
And so, unfortunately, when these plastics come down our rivers and end up in the ocean, they, they get caught up in these circulation systems. And they estimate to take about six years to travel around some of the gyres. And then uh, slowly they migrate towards the center. And the center of these gyres are typically um, becalmed areas. They're known as the doldrums. Sailors don't like to find themselves in the doldrums because mm-hmm. there's very little wind and current. And therefore, they can get stuck for some time in those regions if they don't have a motor or fuel for it. So it's become a huge problem in these very remote regions. And I I have been to uh, four of the five. And I have to tell you, it is depressing. It is depressing when you are thousands of miles away from land and you're pulling in your surface sampler and every single sample, we've now sampled over 122 samples, and every single one of them contains plastic particulates. Mm-hmm. So um, now, mind you, it's only about a handful that we're, we're collecting in an hour, but the sampler is about a meter across and it only uh, samples about 15 centimeters deep. So we're just taking a, just a drop of water in essence, and we're finding plastics. I, I've also referred to them as, as a form of cancer, right? I mean, if this was a human body, it would be a sign of a serious problem. Mm. And, and, and it, it is. And this is just on the surface of the water you're talking about with those gyres, isn't it? That most of it is just yeah. sitting on the surface? Yeah, so the, and that's, you know, because the ocean can be, you know, miles deep, it's very difficult to really figure out what's going on in the water column. So the only way that we have or the technology we have right now is to do these surface samples to get some kind of estimate of how much plastic there is in the ocean. And so just from the work that Five Gyres Institute has done, and I, I joined them in, the, in a sail from uh, Rio de Janeiro to Cape Town, South Africa, we... Uh, that was just one of the gyres that they sample, but they ended up doing all five, and they just published their data a couple of about six months ago, and they estimate 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic floating on the ocean surface. And I just want you to keep in mind that not all plastics float, so mm-hmm. that's just the the plastics that float. I've seen firsthand the cause of plastic onto the beach. It was quite devastating. It's really, really something that needs to move past. There is some solutions come across in research, turning plastic and landfill into fuel, uh, a diesel fuel, as I understand. Can you tell us a bit about this? Well, I I would have to say that this is the silver lining. I have researched just about every type of solution that they've come up with so far and being a solution to to getting rid of plastics. Uh, We've looked at the biodegradable plastics, which really are designed just to break up faster, but their chemical components, because they're man-made, the earth really doesn't know how to destroy them. It doesn't have the ability or the organisms yet to break these plastics down. The idea of biodegrading plastic sounded really great initially, but it turns out that it's it's a bit of a fail. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because it then ends up getting into the recycling goods. And so it actually um, decreases the value of that. So with all the different ideas of like mushrooms that can slowly digest plastic, there's been a lot of solutions that may be on the perimeter. But really, if we were to emulate what nature does, 
you know, nature does a closed system, right? So it, it produces plants out of soil, right? Soil and water and sun. And then when that plant dies, it's the same thing that destroys it and turns it right back into the soil. Well, that's what we need to do with, with this plastic is we need to take it and turn it back into petroleum and natural gas because that's what it started from, right? So a lot of people aren't even aware of what plastics is made out of. So we're taking a limited resource, we're turning it into plastics, we're, we're turning it into 300 million tons this past year, and that plastic will be here for you know centuries. So it's not a closed system. And what we're doing here at UNCW is we're working with an industry that has figured out a way to not only turn it back into oil, but to do it at a energy gain, which has been the biggest pushback to this technology, is that it, it took as much energy to turn it into oil as um, you got in return. Mm. So, you know, if you think about what you have to do to it, you have to heat it, right? It has to be um, put under an enormous amount of heat. And um, and then it's compressed, so you're talking about something that's under a lot of pressure. So whatever this technology is has to be extremely durable, has to have perfect fittings, and then you know you have to have an energy source in order to make it viable. This particular company called PK Clean has figured out a way to use the methane that builds up from the plastic melting. Now, that's a huge distinction between burning it, like my professor friend said, right? Mm -hmm. But in the same sense, using heat to melt it, turn it into methane, which the methane then heats the furnace that melts the plastic. So it's a complete closed system. Mm -hmm. And in return, we get about 80% oil out of the plastics that we put in. So it's a pretty good return. I'd say that's an excellent return. certainly is. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Technology Show with Dr. Bonnie Montaloni talking to us from America. For those that have just joined us, uh, you can catch these podcasts on BZE or 3CR. Dr. Montaloni, you're just stepping backwards a bit from that solution you're offering there. Um, Obviously, you're main interest is plastics in the ocean but in order to stop that I assume your your focus is on not letting get there in the first place besides actually processing the plastics like that when we've made them what other research have you done or considerations to actually not using plastics in the first place or better better life cycles apart from converting it once we have produced it well If you are asking me about the particular product that it makes, there's plenty we can do besides putting it in the combustion engine. We're looking at turning it into asphalt. So just in my county alone, we use about 7,000 gallons of bunker fuel in order to make roads. So imagine taking plastics and turning it into roads. To me, that sounds pretty sexy, right? (laughs) But if you're asking me about maybe not making the plastics in the first place, which I'm a huge proponent for, um, then then I would strongly urge uh, your listeners to look at hemp. Mm-hmm. So hemp was used a lot back in the 17, 1800s. In fact, that's what rope was made out of, right? That's yes. what denim blue jeans were made out of hemp. And it was actually a better product than cotton. And it grew faster and it required less water. 
So, you know, given our situation with, you know, water being the next uh, oil, right, the, mm. then it's a, a really good thing to look at. And especially because we can make plastics out of hemp. We can make just about anything out of hemp. So I would love to see that industry come back. So because, hemp, um, hemp could be turned into a milk bottle or plastic cup? Yes, and it can be even turned into fuel. So it is uh, another incredible, just like petroleum. I mean, we, we can't knock it too hard because we use it for everything, mm-hmm. from the paint on our walls to the carpeting on our floors to what we put in our gas tank, right, to the bumper on our car. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, it would be really great if we could figure out a way to perhaps uh, make the same type of products, but maybe some that don't require as much time to um, disintegrate. Yeah. Hemp's been discussed over a number of decades now, but it doesn't seem to have taken off. Is, is there any reason for that? There's several reasons. Uh, one in particular in the United States, they actually banned the growth of hemp. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So that, that would slow it down, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the reasons why. And, you know, there's been uh, some speculation as to why. One was, you know, so when hemp and cotton were competing, uh, the the cotton industry had better lobbying groups in order to um, push it through because the hemp, of course, is equated to marijuana. And even though it is is not the same strand, it got lumped into the same uh, laws that prevent the growth, growth of it. So... So that's part of it. I just wanted to jump back forward again because um, I'm really interested in this uh, fuel topic. So we have all this plastic in the ocean and all through our landfill and so forth. We know that. Um, is the process that you were speaking on of before turning it into diesel, is it an energy efficient process? So the answer is yes. <laughs> and the company that we're working with has uh, the patent on how they utilize the methane, right? So that's part of the reason why this particular company stands out from the others. The other is the fact that they are uh, doing continuous feed. So previous companies would put a batch in, heat it up, melt it, and then cool it down and then put another batch in. So that's obviously very energy intensive. So we're, we're starting to figure out ways where we can actually make the product, the desired product, and use it as its own energy source. So, yeah, it's, uh, so, so let me back up a little myself because it sounds too good to be true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yep. part of it. In fact, I just <laughs> met with a senator yesterday, and he says, Bonnie, is really great, but it just, you know, like, I don't know. It sounds too good to be true. And I was told that if it is, it's probably not true. And so I said, I, I agree with you 100%. It's, there's always something. And, and it, it, it is obviously very difficult, or everybody would do it, right? So mm-hmm. it, it takes uh, some very high-end engineering, you know, um, in order to produce the technology to give us the desired product. But that said, every bit of it can be used. So some of the other byproducts um, that I haven't mentioned is paraffin. So the way this company is working it now, they're actually taking the paraffin and putting it back through the system and, and creating more oil. Well, we have 17 candle companies in my state. So imagine if we're taking plastics and now turning it into paraffin wax. 
which, you know, most people think candles are made out of beeswax. But mm-hmm. the reality is even the petroleum industry has a corner on that market as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then other byproducts would be um, there is some residue that's left over that's about 5%. And um, that residue can be sold to cement companies as filler. And uh, even my polymer chemist said that could be sold back to the plastics industry as filler. So to me, this sounds really great. And it does sound almost too good to be true. So what we did was we approached this company and asked them if they would give us or make us a tabletop reactor for us to be an independent study on the claims that they are making. So as of January, they built us a reactor, and we now have it here at the university. And we have an engineer student that's working on it, so giving him an an amazing opportunity to learn about this technology hands-on, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes incredibly beautiful oil. We are so (laughs) impressed. Mm -hmm. And the way we are able to capture, because of course we don't have it um, using the methane right now, it's in, we're only doing uh, batches of about two pounds, but we are able to at least uh, capture those gases. But people are completely, especially the chemists here that I work with, they just cannot believe uh, how beautiful this oil is. So now we, we're creating the oil and now we have to analyze it to make sure that we aren't creating another environmental problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're using GC mass spec and NMR to uh, analyze just the chemical components of this particular oil that we're making. And so mm-hmm. far in our analysis, it, uh, we cannot see any red flags. It's- so we're going to continue the work. We have yet to analyze the residue. Uh, so we want to make sure that that is uh, not harmful. And But other than that, I mean, we're really seeing a lot of hope in this technology. And the other beautiful part about it is it's, it's here at the university. So my whole modus operandi is, is teaching, right? I want young people to have experiences much like I have had where I'm out on the open ocean and I'm learning about a problem and And so we're giving them the tools for them to understand something that's going on in their environment, something that is very tangible, something they touch every single day. And then it is overwhelming. You know, I I could tell you some horror stories of what I've seen related to plastics, but to also give them this opportunity of hope. And when you give young people hope, just get out of their way. That's all I got to say, because they are taking it to the next level. I can't tell you how exhilarating that is to hear, and particularly given that this is a science and solutions program, it's it's just perfect. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Could you briefly tell our listeners the difference between the different types of plastic? We see these numbers one to eight on them, and also put in context the microbeads and the concern about those just in the last couple of minutes Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I talked a little bit about recycling in the beginning, now, uh, our number ones and twos, so those are the most profitable in the in the waste stream, right? So those are your water bottles and your soda bottles, and then your detergent bottles and your shampoo bottles are the number twos. So those can go back into that recycling arena, right? So PVC is number three, right? Those mm-hmm. are your pipes that are in your house for the most part, or your shower curtain even. And the ones and, and twos then, are so valuable because they're so stable and they don't leach into the food. Is that 
the essence of uh, it? Actually, I wish I could tell you that's true, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's just the, the, the makeup of the plastics are in such a way where they're much easier to break down and turn into yet another product. Okay. Now, I will tell you about recycling is that you have to use 50% virgin plastics in order to get the value out of the recycled plastics. So mm-hmm. even that is not a very efficient system. But um, it's just basically the chemical compounds that are associated with the ones and twos. They're more simplistic than the, the ones that are higher. So mm-hmm. um, low density polyethylene, uh, number three is PVC, number four is um, high density polyethylene. And then five is polypropylene. So those are your bottle caps, right? Those mm-hmm. are some of the containers, your forks, spoons, and knives, some, some straws. And then um, number six is your polystyrene, and we know that to be your, you know, clamshell containers. It's the puffy styrofoam, but it can also be made into hard plastics as well. So it's a very, very complicated, and this is why this technology is, is you know, slow to come up with a solution because we have made it so complicated. And what separates these different types of plastic mostly is the amount of chemicals or the types of chemicals we're adding to this petroleum product in order to get the desired um, either texture or flexibility or rigidness. Uh, so that's, mm-hmm. that's really the problem is the chemicals that are added and it's the chemicals that can leach out into food and beverages that are a concern. So one of the research projects we're doing now is looking at uh, BPA-free bottles, and, and we're learning that, you know, yeah, so maybe there's no BPA, but there are other chemicals that are leaching out that are known endocrine disruptors, and, and when you talk about your endocrine system, we're talking about that which monitors every single organ in your body, so... Um, yeah, it's it's to me it's reason enough to stay away from using plastics for food and beverages, and to you know it's great for your car for the bump of your car, but maybe not so much to eat and drink out of. Well, you've talked me into not using plastics at all, not just for food and drink. Yeah, that was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I've, I've done my job. <laughs> you definitely have. And I'm not, you know, it's not to demonize it. It's just really it's because of the chemicals that have to go into it and because they can't stay in it, they leach out. I mean, that's why these plastics that are in the ocean break up into small pieces because those chemicals leach out. And so that's what causes it to become brittle. And then the wave action breaks it up into small pieces. Mm. So thanks so, uh, so much for your time today, Dr. Liani. It's been absolutely fascinating and I've got more questions than I had at the start of it. <laughs> Can yeah, people- I know. Start researching because there's a lot of information out there on the web, also on our website. And, uh, yeah, visit our website because you will be empowered by the number of people that we're getting involved. And it doesn't matter the age or level of knowledge. Um, It just takes a curiosity. And we can all change the world, all, by just simple actions and and caring about the planet we live on. And that's www.plasticoceanproject.org? Yes. There's one of the websites and then you've got the blog spot as well. So thanks again and um, we'll continue the hard work in fighting against plastics. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. 
If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantaja. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.